0: Welcome to Officer Wellness with Brian Manley, a candid and informative discussion between retired police chief Brian Manley and law enforcement leaders about the many aspects of Officer Wellness. We hope you enjoy this episode and find it informative. Officer Wellness is powered by off-duty management. Any suggestions for those smaller agencies, for those police leaders in small mid-sized agencies that due to budget constraints don't have the ability to necessarily bring in the level of resources that, uh, that are ideal, but we know they sit just next to a large agency who would be more than willing to help What does successful integration of a regional team look like, and how do you build trust within that regional team since you'll have maybe officers from a different agency wearing a different patch seeking help from someone from a a fellow agency?
1: I think having them train together is important, just like you would train you know, regional tactical teams in in the case of a of a major operation, right? You can train together as peer support teams. And so that may be that initial training, you know, that 40 hour training that a lot of peer supporters will go through um, before they get certified as a peer supporter. So you that's a great opportunity for them to meet. Um, but I suggest to my peer support teams that they also do, you know, quarterly kind of continuing education where maybe I'll come in and I'll talk about a hot topic or you know, substance abuse or something like that. And so those are good opportunities for them to be brought into the mix. Um, After a critical incident is another um, good time for them to be included um, as, as a group and to bring in people maybe from other teams, especially those smaller agencies where, you know, If I'm at an agency with 10 other officers, I may not want to talk to somebody on peer support from my own agency. I may feel like it's too small, like they're too close, that it's just going to be a conflict of interest. And so if people can share their resources, if I can have a list of, you know, the main peer support phone numbers or the peer supporters from the three other agencies around me, that's going to give me, um, you know, just a bigger Pool of people to talk to, um, and I'm going to feel more comfortable maybe utilizing somebody, uh, which is important at the end of the day. That's what we want.
0: You mentioned earlier confidentiality and the importance of that, and and I think uh, you know police officers are used to dealing with sensitive information, but it's always the public's sensitive information, right? It's not their fellow officers' personal information, or it's not them disclosing their own personal issues that they're dealing with. And, and, and confidentiality is, is key. Um, I, I know that uh, for me, and I, and I think I've even said this on a previous podcast, it was always a bittersweet moment when the head of my uh, health and wellness bureau would call me and tell me we saved another one. Um, you know, it was great to get the call to know that through the program that we had put in place, we had built enough trust and enough legitimacy that officers were utilizing it and that we did, in fact, have a save, whether it was a saved career because we got someone into either counseling or a rehabilitation of some sort or another, or we kept them from taking their own life um you know it was it was a very fulfilling moment to know that that had happened but in the same breath i have to say it was just also very troubling because it identifies how truly deep this is within police institutions across the country and to levels that i don't know that we fully understand yet even today even though we've got a much better grip on the level of PTSD that is uh, in American law enforcement today, whether it's through the service uh, to the communities that these officers are giving, many of them come to us with prior service in the military and then what they bring with them gets compounded in their police careers. And so the need obviously cannot be overstated, but the importance of that confidentiality as well. And so um, I, I am pleased that we are continuing to see the, the laws and regulations around confidentiality strengthened and uh, expanded so that these important conversations can be had and, and will be had because officers will understand that. And it is incumbent on police administrators. You were talking earlier about things that police leaders can do to build these programs and encourage them and you cannot and will not build trust if officers don't believe they're gonna have that confidentiality. And, and like you were saying, a clinician that goes about this the wrong way or a peer support member that probably shouldn't be on that peer support team can derail a program. I would say equally as quickly would be a police administrator that uh, tries to get access to information that they shouldn't get access to. Sometimes uh, the need to know uh, is more of a want to know than a need to know, and that'll derail the program. So I, I don't think that we can overstate the need for confidentiality in all of this.
1: No, and then you know to even expand on what you just said, I think that there's also you know what goes along with stigma is this this fear that if an officer discloses that they're experiencing you know PTS or PTSD, you know, or they're or they're having a really troubling time, or they're feeling suicidal. That it's going to result in some kind of discipline or punishment, and I think if police leaders want to support the wellness of their officers, they will be able to differentiate incidents that require discipline and incidents that require help or assistance. Um, and sometimes that's a big gray area um, that that leaders really have to sort through. Um, and so what I would say is, you know, if you have an officer that comes to you that says. I've not been feeling myself lately. I'm depressed and I'm thinking of killing myself. What do you do? Do you right? like you have to get them help? Um, How do you, you know, pull them off the streets without making it feel like it's punishment for them? How do you separate them from their their firearm without it feeling like they're being disciplined? If an officer says that, you know, they realize that they're addicted to their painkillers, what do you do with that? Um, are they going to be disciplined? They haven't done anything on duty yet, you know, or do you say, okay, we're going to help you. We're going to get you into inpatient treatment and we're going to pay for it. We're going to get you back on the street.
0: Sure. And I, I'm hopeful and I am believing that, uh, we're, we're coming around to that and realizing that this has to be a system that is first there to help. And then only there to handle, you know, things in a disciplinary manner when it becomes necessary. And, uh, you know, each one of those is likely the result of a, a system that wasn't trusted or the fact that a system wasn't in place um, and, and there was not the opportunity to help that officer earlier. Um, I- want to pivot a little bit from what we traditionally talk about when we talk about officer health and wellness and you know, that, that one critical incident um, that, that they experienced, whether it was a shooting or whether it was a, a suicide, homicide, sexual assault, any, any of the things that unfortunately officers experience every day, sometimes it's the culmination of a career full of those small incidents through, you know, that, that just has built to this point. And, and coupled with that, what we've seen going on in law enforcement over the past year and a half, two years with this whole, you know, move to reimagine policing and to really question, you know, why things are done the way that they've been done uh, with incidents that have happened in policing around the country that have really led to calls for change, that have led to really the, the protests and sometimes the riots that have occurred. Um, have you seen... Uh, increases in officers experiencing uh, traumatic impacts based on what's going on in policing today, and uh, obviously we're seeing officers leaving the profession in, in, in greater numbers than ever, and, and does that play into uh, to that as
1: well? The answer to your question is yes to both. Um, You know, certainly after last summer, when really those protests and riots were kind of at their peak, I mean, I would say probably anecdotally that 80% of my law enforcement clients were um, either in the process of trying to retire or considering retiring um, because they were scared and their families were also scared for them and getting in their ears Um, And they didn't feel like it was getting any better. I think they didn't. A lot of them felt like they didn't have support from their organizations. They felt like um, the leaders in their organization were kind of placating or saying what they needed to say and therefore betraying, you know, those those officers that were really on the front line. And so I think, you know, you experience all of this trauma as a law enforcement officer, and then to throw betrayal from your own organization on top of it, even if it's just perceived, um, it's going to exacerbate everything. So that's been huge. And then, you know, the numbers that are coming out from, you know, especially some agencies, record numbers of retirement, um, difficulty recruiting, I was making a joke here in Arizona um, when I was talking to a a group of police chiefs a couple of weeks ago about, you know, how I was driving down in Tucson and I see a billboard, you know, that Albuquerque police is is hiring, right. They're trying to poach the guys in Tucson to go work in Albuquerque. And then I see signs, billboards in Denver, um, you know, or in Albuquerque that are trying to steal Denver officers, you know, and it just kind of is all around. And so people are trying to take the good officers, From other organizations. And I think that one of the ways that you retain your officers is by supporting their overall wellness. If you have officers that feel like they're taken care of, that feel like their organizations care about them, then they're going to want to work there.
0: Absolutely, and 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 I can't say that uh, I haven't uh, seen or been part of some of those poaching efforts in the past, where we where we definitely try to steal from each other. Um, but uh, that's that's both a compliment that your agency has good officers, but when you see that mass exodus, it's also probably a, a harbinger of things to come with what's going on. And and these are definitely uh, difficult times right now. Um, I. I guess one of the things that we looked at um, you know back at uh, at my agency before I retired was the importance and the need to build resiliency within the officers so that they could face the really the the traumas that we know that they'll face just based on being a police officer, but then especially with uh, the change in tide and, and sentiment around the country, um, you know, more localized in some areas than others uh, regarding policing. Building that resiliency in the academy, actually dedicating uh, part of their early training at the very beginning of the academy to resiliency. What does it look like and how do you face that? So um, is, is that a, an area where I guess maybe I should ask it more as a question, the importance of building that resiliency early on in officers and how to best do so?
1: Absolutely. You know, and during academy training, you know, oftentimes there's like a four hour course in stress and trauma. And it's like, let's just throw all of this really negative information at you and tell you about all of the horrible things that you're going to see and experience and how you're going to react to that. Um, And then there's very little about like well, what do you do about it after the fact, and what do you do to make sure that it doesn't have that impact on you? In fact, I can recall teaching an academy class one time about stress and trauma, and one of the uh, one of the recruits was saying, "I think we need like a cat video or something at the end of this. It just like this was this was a lot um, but I think that you know resiliency has become kind of a bumper sticker term, but there's a lot of truth to it that how can we build up the skills in people before they actually need to use them? Um, Because, you know, the definition of resiliency is the ability to bounce back from hard times. And so how can we make people better able to bounce back so that, you know, yes, after something bad happens, after a critical incident, after you experience trauma, there's going to be a natural reaction. But how can we make sure that it doesn't last as long so that you can, you know, be present with your family after the fact or go back to work quicker or, you know, not have it impact your life and still have purpose? And so I think having, you know, resiliency training at the outset of the academy before they start to to encounter all of these bad things, as well as, you know, how do you how do you learn in a high stress environment? How do you ensure peak performance? Um, these are all things, I think, right on the positive side that officers should be learning. You know, and especially if we want to look at officers like they're athletes and we want them to perform at their best at all times, like these are the things that we need to be thinking of um, in addition to everything else. And so I think it starts with, you know, when it comes to resiliency, you know, what does an officer's support system look like? How do they surround themselves with people that are going to give them energy rather than suck it from them? Um, The importance of having a purpose in life and what gives them meaning and making sure that they make time for that. Um, the importance of having an identity outside of law enforcement. We know so many officers that, you know, just being, being a cop is all they know. Um, they live, they live, they breathe, they sleep, work. And there's, the reality is is that there's going to be a day that comes with, they're not in law enforcement anymore. And what are they going to do about it? So making sure that they have that identity outside of law enforcement helps to give them balance. And those are just some of the tools that should be taught at the forefront.
0: I can't agree more with you and although it's not really our topic today but there is definitely steps that you should take to plan for retirement because it is it is quite a life change um, and, and to make sure that you're ready for that but I think there are opportunities throughout the career to, to build although it's the buzzword that resiliency but the importance of building that at the beginning of having a plan throughout one's career um, uh, I, I had always encouraged our officers uh, in the academy to take a personal inventory of who they were, what was important to them in their life at that moment, their friends, their family, their faith, everything that meant something to them. And just to write it down and to keep it in a personal place just for them so they could check in with it throughout their career to make sure that they hadn't veered too far away from the person that they were at the beginning of their career um, because of knowing what it can do to you. Um, and, And I guess... I, I don't want to be too elementary with this, but you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that this uh, this podcast will be informative to some, and 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 maybe just touch on some of those important things that that first line supervisor or that partner officer should look for um, in an officer who may be beginning to show signs that they are in need of, of of some type of attention for their health and wellness.
1: I would hope so too.
0: Yeah, and so. Um, You know, the the, the traditional things that that we think of in that avenue are, you know, the officer that calls in sick after having had three days off or that, you know, that takes a day off extra on the beginning, using more sick time, getting more complaints for how they're interacting with with the community, um, you know things like that. Um, You know, working uh, excessive amounts of overtime, uh, again, as a way, you know, if they can't step away from the job or they're identifying with it too much and they're losing, you know, who they are on the personal side of their life outside of work and the problems that that can bring. So um, anything in your experience or background, um, you know, that, that, supervisors, peer officers should look for, you know, on top of some of the ones that are probably more readily recognized.
1: Well, I love the three that you mentioned, because those are statistics that departments, you know, already track, right? Is a person calling in sick, Are they working too much overtime? You know, maybe that's a sign that they're avoiding going home, um, that there's something going on at home that they don't want to deal with. You know, a lot of times when people are calling sick a lot, that may be indicative of an alcohol abuse or a substance use problem, Um, and then, you know, obviously complaints, so there's maybe some personality problems that are impacting work, but outside of maybe what the department is tracking, it's really important for frontline supervisors to really get to know their people and what's typical for them. So I call that an officer's baseline, which is how they are on a day-to-day level. You know, do they actually eat their lunch? Do they tend to eat pretty healthy? Um, do they come in rested um, or are they typically kind of tired? How social are they? Um You know, are they a pretty active person and all of a sudden they're just skipping the gym every day? Um, The supervisors are going to be the ones to pick up on some of that information. And so anytime they notice a deviation from that officer's baseline, that's going to be an indication that something's going on. And I tell officers, too, you know, I know it may seem like your spouse is nagging you when they say that, you know, you're acting differently or they're complaining about something. But those are the things that you should actually be listening to because they're probably picking up on a change um and so also teaching officers to listen to the people around them when they're calling them out on their behavior. Yep.
0: Absolutely and and it's not something that we're always good at is listening to others when uh, when we're the subject of the uh, the the critique but it is uh, it is quite necessary though because typically it is those that are closest to us and they're doing it with the best of intentions. So um take a pause here and just ask you um anything at this point that you want to, you know, just kind of elaborate on. You've been doing this uh, for quite a while. You have got a tremendous amount of experience. Uh, You are obviously very recognized in this field and speak regularly on the topic. Um, So I don't want to limit our conversation just to things that, uh, that come through, through the questions, just uh, your, your suggestions, your ideas, your thoughts on this very important area of, of health and wellness.
1: You know, one of the things that I just think is the most important, even though we already touched on it, I think it's one of the most important things is um, having your department get to know the people that are going to support you in the event of a critical incident or when something bad happens. Um, You know, we, we didn't touch on EAPs, employee assistance programs, and I think that EAPs have a place. Um, The, the problem that I see a lot of times is that um, EAPs don't have the clinicians that are trained Um, And then in the event of a critical incident, you call your EAP and they send somebody that nobody in your department knows. And there's no officer, well, there's a very small percentage of officers, I'm not going to say none, um, that are going to talk to this random person that has no experience that they've never met in their life about something horrible that they just went through. And they're certainly not going to disclose if they're having a problem due to it. Um, And so I think that having the people that you trust, that your department trusts and bringing them in early on. Is so incredibly crucial. Um, EAPs have a place for short-term counseling for things that are maybe not trauma-related um, and our general stressors. But when it comes down to truly supporting the things that are impacting your officers, you want somebody that's that's really trained. And one of the things that I tell the departments that I work with, and maybe it's because um, I just like a good party or a barbecue, is that you know when you have a department party of some kind, or you have a family barbecue, you know, or maybe, you know, you can kill two birds with one stone and your peer support team can have a family day, you know, where they bring in pizza and stuff. But, you know, I invite me to that, you know, this is an opportunity for me to mix and mingle with people on a non-clinical level and they can actually kind of get to know me and see who I am as a person. And then that way, when I show up to that debriefing after something bad happens, it's not, you know, sitting stoic in a, in a circle while people talk. It's, you know, let's shake hands and give each other hugs and, you know, shoot the breeze a little bit. And it's a much more comfortable situation. And um, I see much better results when departments can, can integrate people in that way.
0: I, I think that's great because that way you're right. Maybe they're not sitting across from Dr. Kuhlman, but they're talking with Catherine because and, and they've gotten <laughs> to know you just a little bit and, and, and anything you can do to break down that barrier um, of, of uh, you know what really is a, a, a stigma that's been there for a long time and, and, and a hindrance for getting officers to come forward. Um, do you see a link between health and wellness programs and what a lot of larger agencies have, and that's the chaplain program, um, and and maybe uh, you know smaller agencies hopefully are getting into that as well. Is that a natural link, or is that, or should there be separation there? What is your opinion of that?
1: I love law enforcement chaplains. Um, I think that they are. Um, absolutely crucial again to a wellness program. And especially if you, you know, you're in an area of the country, um, where a lot of people rely more on faith, because again, there's some people that just don't want to see a shrink and they feel much comfortable, um, you know, with a faith-based intervention and a lot of law enforcement chaplains too, you know, when they show up to a debrief or they're talking, they don't always bring faith into it, but they have such a unique perspective. Sometimes, um, I was doing, um, an officer involved shooting debrief, um, recently, Actually, scratch that. It was a line of duty death debrief. Um, and it, it was myself and um, two of the agency's chaplains that were in attendance. And they were able to expand upon everything that I was saying. They were drawing diagrams on whiteboards. And so they were able to add. Um, so much to what I was saying in in ways that maybe, you know, maybe some officers were resonating with what I was saying, but maybe they needed that extra bit from the chaplains. And, you know, sometimes with the shrink, it just feels too clinical. You're like, I don't want to talk to this doctor. This just doesn't, you know, and, and a chaplain just seems a little bit more informal. And so I think the more of a, you know, kind of cafeteria approach, the more resources that you can provide and the more options there are, um, the better buy-in you're going to get.
0: Yeah, I agree. The more inroads to the system that's built to help you, and, and, and as you just pointed out, the more, I guess, opportunities people have to choose maybe the discipline they want to speak with, uh, the psychologist versus the, the, the chaplain um, or, or even the peer support, the fellow officer. So um, mm-hmm. I guess as, as we wrap up here today, though, um, I, I want to again thank you for, uh, for your time here today but more importantly thanking you again as I did at the beginning for dedicating yourself and your career to helping those that serve. Uh, it is the, the sad truth that uh, we know as, as police leaders that we are going to expose our men and women who serve to the worst of the worst on a regular basis and uh, you know in the past we've always just expected them to be okay and just go to that next call um, not realizing that each one of those instances, they they picked up that pebble and they put it in their sack. And after you know, after a handful of years, that sack starts getting pretty heavy. And so I, I very much appreciate professionals like yourself that are really letting us advance this uh, this program that many of us had peer support things like that for a while, but really take it to the level where it needs to go. And I am I am hopeful. That through the continued efforts uh, and, and professionalism, I'm, I'm pleased to hear you talk about the college degree program that's out there now, that we're going to continue to see this advance. Um, and so, again, as, as we close, I want to thank you for what you do uh, for those that serve in, in, in your community and the communities where you provide service and just give you the opportunity to hear uh, anything that you want to close with.
1: Nothing. Thank you, you know, so much for having me. I'm really happy that ODM, you know, has begun this podcast series and is talking about such an important topic. Um, and and it is truly my my pleasure and my honor and my privilege to be able to support the men and women in law enforcement.
0: Thank you very much, Doctor Coleman. You've been listening to Officer Wellness with Brian Manley, powered by Off Duty Management. Off-Duty Management provides off-duty job administrative services and comprehensive liability insurance to officers and agencies at no cost. For more information on Off-Duty Management, visit offdutymanagement.com.